I'm Julia Gerlach. Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series, supported by Sound Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks to Sound Agriculture for their support of this podcast series. Forget bulky nutrients and finicky biologicals. Wake up your soil and unlock more corn per acre with Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary chemistry approach that works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. It's like caffeine for microbes. With less than an ounce of application per acre, you can give those microbes a boost, sit back, and let them work their magic. Go to sound.ag and learn more. Riceville, Iowa strip tiller Eric Hawbaker didn't grow up on a farm, but a decade of working in the fertilizer industry as an agronomist, service tech, and precision ag salesman left him concerned about the losses he saw occurring as a result of broadcasting nutrients. As he explored options to improve nutrient use efficiency, he learned that subsurface banding of dry fertilizer made economic and environmental sense, so he partnered with a friend to share in the cost of a strip-till rig and launched a custom strip-till operation. For this Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Eric to hear about how Strip-Till has helped him improve soil health and achieve better emergence, even on corn-on-corn acres. He also shares how he's integrating cover crops into the operation, why he's a strong proponent of CSP and equip programs, and how he's working with landlords to get more acres seeded to cover crops. So Eric, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your background? I started farming in 2005 after 10 years as an agronomist. And you didn't grow up on a farm? I did not. Both my grandparents farmed, so I spent an awful lot of time on it as a kid. Always wanted to farm, but didn't really have the opportunity to do it. Working as an agronomist, I kind of found an opportunity to start farming with uh, a former customer and uh, when he was retiring because of health issues. So I started farming in 2005. Initially started with 600 acres. We're up to about 2,500 now. That, that's just my operation or my part of the operation, I guess. We actually have, I guess what I would call two operations or three operations that work together here, me and a couple of friends or neighbors and uh, do a lot of joint ownership of equipment, sharing of equipment, pinch hitting for each other. (laughs) Um, If one of us gets behind, the other one will usually slide in and combine a field or or plant a field. That's kind of how the whole strip till thing started is one of the guys was strip tilling. I got interested in it. Um, He had been hiring it all done, but was going through a lot of frustrations with finding somebody that could do all the acres because at the time he had, oh, I'm going to say between 800 and 1,000 acres that he was having custom strip tilled every year. And to be able to get somebody to do that many acres timely was becoming an issue for him, but he didn't want to run it. (laughs) And I was not afraid of running it and was interested in getting into applying my own fertilizer and looking for a different way of doing things. And the more I studied strip till, the more I liked it. And... I guess I would say I dove in with both feet (laughs) right from the beginning and him and I jointly bought the machine, but the agreement was that I was going to run it, manage it, maintain it. And he just basically cover half of the expenses from day one. We started doing custom work as well. And now my operation is about a third of the acres that we do. His operation is about a third of the acres. And then we custom do another third. 
So it, it stays busy. So we've had quite a few changes in the 10 years since we started this in 2013 in our operations, but we're all pretty well committed to the strip till and, and it's been a good system for us. It works well up here. You know, I, I got into it a lot because having started farming only a few years before that, I didn't have the money to be out buying multiple pieces of equipment, large tractors and doing lots of tillage. And we have very rocky soils up here. So the more tillage you do, the more rock you got to pick up. <laughs> and that was really stressing the operation, being able to pick up that much rock. We have very, very heavy soils in our areas. Like my farms, the majority of my farms run somewhere between four and 6% organic matter. Not a lot of clay, but uh, heavy organic matter, very loamy soils. In order to get them to warm up in the spring, we need to do some kind of tillage. or It, it works best. We do no-till beans. We have fairly good luck with that, but no-tilling corn. We are in the coldest, wettest part of the state of Iowa. And if we wanted to wait till June 1st to plant, that would be fine. But it doesn't work planting in the last week of April. <laughs> <laughs> and strip tillage kind of became the solution to that. Our emergence is actually better in strip till than it would be with conventional tillage. We find it being much more consistent, more even. The fertilizer placement below the, the seed in the strip has eliminated the need for starter on the planter, which has really helped in the planting situation. We've adapted our nitrogen programs around the strip till. We, we mostly side dress after we apply. We try to put on, well, we put some nitrogen on with the strip-till machine in the form of dry, whether it be just in the DAP or the MAP, plus some urea. Sometimes that varies from scenario to scenario. But uh, we put some on that way, and then we come back and put some more 32% on pre-emerge with the herbicide, and then we come back and side dress the balance of it. That's been a good solution for us, putting nitrogen on three different timings three different ways. In one way, shape, or form, corn's going to get the nitrogen it eats. <laughs> it just, it, it's never deficient. We don't have to worry about weather scenarios quite as much. We aren't as dependent on one timing or one application. And if we get a little delayed with one of them, we just pick up the slack with the next one. And we have a couple of different side dress rigs. So we can apply corn all the way up to about 36 inch corn. So we don't, we had a lot of problems early on with uh, side dressing, just trying to cover too many acres. We get some rain or get something happen, and next thing you know, the corn's too big and you got to hire somebody. So we've kind of changed the way we do things a little bit, gave us a wider window. And are you doing spring strip till or fall or both? We do as much as we can in the fall, <laughs> and then we do whatever's left in the spring. We try to do most of our corn on corn in the spring because that way the stocks have had more time to degrade. But we try to do all the bean stubble in the fall mm -hmm. so that uh, we can get as much done and out of the way as we can, which some years it works great, some years it doesn't. So we've, and a lot of it has to do with labor when we have time. Not all years have I had somebody to dedicate to the strip till machine. So, you know, for the first few years we were doing it, we had to get done combining first and then go to the strip till machine and always ended up doing it when it was cold and wet and things don't dry out. 
And the last couple of years, we've made a, a much more conscious effort of getting the strip till machine going earlier. And last year, we had great weather last fall, but we were done strip tilling like the 7th of November. And we had covered every acre that we could have, that anybody asked us to do. And we picked up a lot of business last year because of the open fall. The one change we did do last year is we started planting some shorter season beans so that we weren't waiting for them quite so long. And that, that moved the corn harvest up about maybe a week to 10 days. But corn, we still stick with pretty full season hybrids around here for this area. So I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice yield anywhere to go to strip till just to say I got it done. And but, what was the intention with doing the shorter season beans? Well, we had kind of played around with it for a couple of years and found out that the shorter season beans were yielding just as well <laughs> as the older season beans uh-huh. or fuller season beans. And if it would speed things up a little bit in the fall, allow us to get to corn harvest a little bit sooner and allow us to get to the strip tillage and fall work a little bit quicker, then it'd be worth it. And last year it paid off tremendously. I'm hoping it will again this year. What sort of yields are you looking at usually? Oh, corn in this area, 200 to 220, most of it. And it's pretty consistent. We don't have a lot of variability. We don't have really poor farms or really sandy farms in this area. So everything pretty much stays up there pretty good if you manage it well and got good fertility on it. I did have one farm that dropped down last year to about 185, which was one of the lower farms I've had in several years. Not quite sure exactly. That was a little later planted. And that was one that we got a little bit late on the nitrogen on last year. And it was a short season hybrid too, just because it was the end of, you know, the last planted field. But uh, we shoot for an average right around 200 to 205. We'll see it vary, like I said, anywhere from 185 to 225. If I can get, if I can finish the year averaging 200 or 205, I feel we did pretty good. And what about Um, soybean yields? Soybeans, mid fifties, typically there again, it, it, it ranges a little bit, but, uh, like anywhere else. I, we don't grow a lot of the 80 bushel beans, not that we haven't seen them. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have neighbors that seem to always have them, but, uh, <laughs> but we don't. They say, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned that you do some corn on corn. So what sort of rotation are you looking at? What's your ratio? Well, the corn on corn that we do is continuous corn. We've varied that around. Some years I have more than others. I have certain fields that I'm more interested in putting to corn than, than others. A lot of that has to do with proximity to the dryer. <laughs> you know, we farm over a very large area, you know, for 2,500 acres, it's 40 miles from the north, farthest north to the farthest south field. We have dryer sites at both ends, but we try to keep the corn on corn as close as we can so we don't have to do as much hauling. And you know, we have farms in between, but there's two main centers of where, they, where the acres are. So the farms in between very seldom get corn on corn. And the farms real close to the dryer that are good for corn on corn, well suited. We try to do a little bit more just because it just takes the weight off of the, the bean harvest. We try to keep it under 1,100 or 1,200 acres of beans each year. Just we're running one combine and to do more than that is kind of pushing the limit be able to do and some years that's even too much what was it three or four years ago when the corn market was so much better than the bean market i think we had 
almost 450 acres of corn on corn. We were more like one third, two thirds that year, um, just because the corn market was so much better. And I remember one of those fields we switched. We had planned on planting beans into it until two days before we planted it. And then I just, I pulled the trigger and decided to heck with it. We're going to plant corn, better opportunity. So we were able to do that. Strip till machine was free. So <laughs> he got out and ran it. And two days later, I planted it. Everything came together in that scenario. I don't own it personally. Some of it's family ground that relatives own. It's been in my family for a lot of years. So I guess it's under similar management, but, uh, some of the farms are the opposite end of the spectrum too. They're, they've been road hard and put away wet and they need a lot of TLC and strip till has been a, a great scenario in that situation too, where, you know, I'm, I'm renting a farm that's been milked of the fertility pretty hard and the increased efficiency from being able to put the fertilizer right below the seed just seems to overcome all of the fertility issues that we've had or that we see in soil testing. So have you seen an increase in strip till in your area recently? I've seen a lot of interest in strip till and a lot of the people that we do custom work for is people that are just want to try a few acres. Most of those people have not, how do I want to say this, went out and bought their own machines because of the complexity of running a strip till machine, the, the, the labor issue, the equipment issue, all that together. But we've seen a lot of people try it, get a feel for it, a taste for it. I've got some customers that we've been doing for over 10 years now, strip tilling. It's allowed a lot of the smaller guys to get involved in it. And like I said, it, I, we've got one customer that from day one, as soon as he found out we were buying a strip till machine, he's like, I want you to do it. And I'm still doing it to this day, but he only farms a couple hundred acres and you can't afford to buy a strip till machine on a couple hundred acres. I don't care how small you go, you can't do it. But it's worked really good for us. And, and I think it's worked well for him too. And I think he'll tell you that. It's slowly gaining acceptance, but I think the, the cost of entry to it is really slowing a lot of people down. Okay. Um, a lot of people balk at the, the cost per acre to have it done custom. I got other people that say it's the cheapest thing that they could possibly do. So it's all in a matter of the way you want to look at it. Yep. And I personally think it's the cheapest route that I can find. And, uh, and I'm surprised that we have not had more people take advantage of the, the equip funds and the, the CSP funds that are out there to do it. That was a big part of me getting involved into it. And there, there is a lot of money out there to provide for getting into it and to help cover the costs of strip tilling. Yeah. So you were able to, uh, you got some funding from one of those programs. Yeah. We were able to go through, uh, I guess it was a strip till, no till, three-year equip program at the beginning. It's a one-time thing. You can sign up for three years. They do it on a limited number of acres up to a total dollar amount. That pretty much paid for me to get into it. Wow. And then after that, you know, there was still expense after that, obviously. But it was worth it. The NRCS office around here at least loves watching people go to strip till wow. and no till. They think that's just great. We don't have the long-term history of no till that they do in other parts of the the country. And so you are also using cover crops? Yes. On all your acres or some acres or what? We don't do it on all of the acres. We do it on some of the acres. Oh, we, I've been doing cover crops for almost 10 years. Oh, okay. Um, 
<clears throat> initially it started out as an erosion control method. Um, very quickly became a compaction control method. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, that really seemed to help us a lot. Um, and now it has evolved also into a weed control method. We're getting a lot out of it, I think. What are you typically using? Cereal rye or? Well, we've tried a whole host of different things, but we, we found that cereal rye is the most effective up here because of the fact that we're seeding everything with an airplane. We don't have enough time between soybean harvest to be able to get it seeded and have it germinate typically. We do probably two thirds of our corn harvest on frozen ground. <laughs> or maybe not frozen, but cold. <laughs> it's cold enough that it's not gonna germinate. Sure. <laughs> um, and it's not uncommon for us to finish corn harvest in the snow. Okay. So we try to fly everything on early, uh, like the first week of September, just so that we can get the cereal rye growing and, and get it started before winter. We have tried throwing radishes in, in several cases, radishes or turnip or rape, or we've tried clover. Um, we've done annual rye several times. Mm -hmm. Annual rye, we had a problem with the airplanes getting it consistently spread just because it's so light and fluffy, it doesn't spread out real well. Okay. Um, radishes and rape, turnip, all of those. <laughs> Most of it doesn't germinate in the fall. Most of it will wait till spring and then it'll germinate. Oh. <laughs> and it becomes a whole nother issue. Which oh, yeah. It's never been detrimental to a crop, but it, it's made some bean fields look really ugly. You know, despite the fact that we use pre-emerge herbicide on everything, they'll grow right through it. Or they either grow through it or they germinate after it. I don't know which is it is. We still do throw a little bit in. I think we throw one or two pounds in. I don't know that it's doing us a lot of good other than it's meeting the qualifications for some of the programs that we're in. It can't hurt. I know it's not doing us any harm, but cereal rye has been the most consistent one for us. And, and I think a lot of people would tell you that. We're putting on 55 to 60 pounds with the airplane. This year, stuff really took off. We had an early spring and I was planting corn into stuff that was 12 inches tall. And then we usually kill it right after we plant it. So the sprayer will usually pull in right behind the planter, put down the pre-emerge herbicide, a shot of 32% and, and round up all at once. We get a lot of neighbors looking at us a little sideways when we got two inch tall corn plants coming up through 12 inches of dead cereal rye, <laughs> but it's never caused us a problem, you know, especially with the strip till we, we do have a strip cleared. So. And then that cereal rye will sort of fall over at some point, right? It does. It, it takes a long time. <laughs> if you go out there now, yeah, it's just kind of a mat on the ground, uh -huh. but boy, it, it took it almost six weeks to fall over. Okay. And you know, we don't roll it or anything like that. I, I've heard a lot of people doing that, but ours, you know, it hasn't gotten to the stage of heading out yet when when we kill it. So it would be too early to roll it. It wouldn't be effective. So we pretty much have to spray round up on it all the time. We've also found the cereal rye is the easiest one to kill. Um, when we used annual rye, we would occasionally have annual rye come through a roundup application. And then we'd end up with a weed problem and we do grow some conventional corn and that can be a real problem. <laughs> you know? um, we Cereal rye has just become the easiest, simplest, and most effective for us all the way around. Yeah. But you say that uh, you're seeing that it's 
beneficial as a weed suppressant or um, helping with weeds. So tell me about that. In what way are you seeing that? Well, in years like this year where we get a real good growth on it, which doesn't happen every year, if we can get six to eight inches of growth on it before we kill it off, it significantly reduces the amount of weed pressure in our fields. Doesn't mean that we don't have to spray like we did before. We just don't, when we do spray, we're not having to kill as many weeds. Yeah. Therefore, our weed control is just that much better. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's that much less early competition from the, from the weeds. It's hard to put dollars and cents to it because it's not really saving us a trip but I do think it's probably eliminating us having to put in every product that we can come up with or having to change products a lot. We're still, we're able to pretty much stick with our original plan uh-huh. and don't have to do a lot of adjusting sure, for, right. for our weed control. Uh-huh. And this year, the big kicker this year, what I felt I was seeing, but we didn't have anywhere near the water hemp pressure this year that we have in past years. And I think a lot of that had to do with the cover crops. We'll get back to Eric Hawbaker in a moment, but I'd like to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Source Agriculture, for supporting our Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Forget bulky nutrients and finicky biologicals. Wake up your soil and unlock more corn per acre with Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary chemistry approach that works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. It's like caffeine for microbes. With less than an ounce of application per acre, you can give those microbes a boost, sit back, and let them work their magic. Go to sound.ag and learn more. Now let's get back to Eric Hawbaker as he talks about his strip-till rig and explains the improvements he saw when he made the decision to invest in implement guidance. What kind of strip-till bar are you running or what's your equipment set We've got a, a Kuhn Krauss 16-row Gladiator. That's the only machine that I've ever owned <laughs> and ever ran. I, I can't honestly say I have a ton of experience with other equipment uh-huh. because I've been so pleased with what that Gladiator's done that I haven't been looking around for something different. And then we have a, a Montag fertilizer system on it. We only put dry fertilizer down with ours. We made the decision almost from the beginning that we did not want to try to do ammonia at the same time. It was just too many things going on. So I don't have anything against using ammonia. (laughs) I like ammonia, Um, but I can only run so many things at once. And trying to do a good job strip tilling and keep things going straight, working around all the obstacles and fields so that they plant really well and everything ends up straight and and, uh, and square and making sure the fertilizer comes out right <laughs> and having to reload every 25 to 30 acres. We typically run the shank about six inches deep. So the fertilizer placement is between, I would say between five and six inches deep. Mm-hmm. Um, the gladiator can go significantly deeper than that, but we've never found a need to. And the the few situations where we are either going up and down a hill with it and might possibly get into an erosion issue, it's just going to erode to however deep that shank goes. So the shallow as we can get it, we'd just as soon be it there. We, you can't run the machine any shallower than six inches. And honestly, I don't think it would work 
I don't think we'd do as good of a job if you went shallower. But we found no advantage to going deeper. And the horsepower requirement is so much higher. You wouldn't think that two inches makes a lot of difference, but boy, does it pull hard when you just drop it that much. And then yeah. are you running guidance on your strip till machine? On our strip till machine, uh, we've got a John Deere tractor on it. So that so we've got John Deere RTK guidance. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then we also have implement guidance. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So we started that two or three years ago with, you know, we don't have a lot of hills around here, but we did start noticing that the machine would be sliding downhill a little bit on the side hills and wasn't as big of a deal for, for me because I've got a 16 year old strip till and a 16 year old planner and it, it worked out pretty good. But I had two or three customers that were running 12 row units following a 16 row strip till machine. Okay. And they would really notice it. <laughs> They'd have either four or eight rows that lined up perfectly and the other ones didn't. <laughs> so they were trying to hit a happy medium. Uh-huh. And it, it worked. I mean, they were all very sold on the strip till, and I only had one guy who really was unhappy about it. But I, I think since we went to the um, the implement guidance, that's helped tremendously. We've even started noticing in places now, like especially on corn stalks, where if I'm following a planter that doesn't have implement guidance on it, and he's sliding downhill a little bit but I'm trying to stay in the middle of his rows. When I get onto that side hill, his planter will slide downhill and my strip till machine will keep going straight. And next thing you know, I'm right over the top of his rows. So it takes a year or two to get everything synced. Yeah, right. I think it's done really well. On the side hills that I've got, I've definitely noticed that it has improved how, it improved our pass to pass spacing you know, we're running RTK and, and always have run RTK on the strip till machine. But once we went to passive guidance, suddenly that took out all the variability from pass to pass. Mm-hmm. And my combine operator barks all the time now that he can't ever find where the row splits are to, uh-huh. you know, where to cut in. <laughs> so I, I think it's helped quite a bit. Let's talk about... Um Soil testing, because that seems like something that's a sort of a big focus of yours. You have been using the Haney test for soil testing, um, from what I understand. So why don't you tell me how you're using it and what is it telling you? Well, we got involved doing the Haney test as part of our CSP program. And I was I was real curious to see what the results would be with the strip till. And I do have a couple of farms that we do not do strip till on at all. So I use those as kind of a benchmark and then also was was testing our our strip till farms and uh, tried to be as accurate as I could about going to the same spots each year and and testing them. I was a little surprised to see that a soil health test did not improve as fast as I thought it would, despite the fact that we already went to strip till. But well, and like I said, this other farm, that's in a corn soybean rotation it's still being no-tilled to beans and all we do is field cultivate ahead of the corn. So it's not like it's getting major tillage, but we did, I I think the cover crops in combination with the strip till have really allowed us to start improving the, the soil health of those fields. The Haney test has shown improvements and I'm not going to quote numbers because I don't have any of them off the top of my head and haven't honestly looked at them for about a year. But, uh, 
did feel we were getting some pretty serious benefits out of it, uh -huh. you know, the, the, yeah, the tillage system as well as the uh, cover crops. So what sort of benefits are you seeing like in terms of your soil biology or the physical qualities of your soil? Well, I'm finding that uh, the soil tilth is improving dramatically. But, you know, like I said, most of the farms that we have previously or prior to me farming them were in a conventional tillage type of rotation. One farm I can think of in particular had some severe erosion problems, kind of had the local nickname of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, and that's not just because it's a, a bad farm. It just, it takes a lot of water from a lot of directions anyway. So there's a lot of issues to deal with, not just your own water, but you got water from the neighbors flowing onto you too. No-till would be ideal in that scenario to try to keep water from moving. You know, any tillage you do is going to affect water or affect soil erosion. The less you could do, the better. And uh, the strip-till was kind of one way for us to hit a happy medium on that farm of getting the benefits of the tillage, but but still not creating a lot of erosion issues or limiting the amount of erosion we have on the farm. We've also noticed that and that farm prior to that had been mostly moldboard plowed. Within four to five years, we saw the soil tilth dramatically increase on that farm. We don't see the soil erosion or soil loss that we used to. If we do see erosion start somewhere, it, it doesn't erode to the same degree. You know, it's slight. It tends to be more spread out. Doesn't tend to create gullies and ruts after a one-inch rain, you know. We've had some fairly major rains in the last few years, and even some of that has held really well. So just from, you know, you can feel the organic matter in the soil when you when you work with it. Another comment I usually use to sell strip till is, it used to be that soil crusting after we planted was a huge issue around here. A lot of people owned rotary hose um, and would run them fairly religiously if in case we got a rain before the corn emerged, because all, all the ground would just, seal right up and the corn wouldn't be able to come up. I have yet to have a crusting issue since the day I started uh, strip tilling. In fact, I had bought a rotary hoe right before that. It sat in the yard for three years. I never even hooked up to it and finally oh. I just sold it. Oh. <laughs> so that goes back to what one of my first comments too, of saying our emergence has gotten so much better. Uh -huh. um, we just don't have the crusting issues. We don't have a hard time Corn plants don't have a hard time getting out of the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, the strip till, especially the fall strip till, has created a much more uniform uh, soil and water condition where we plant that seed so that it all comes up uniformly. And, and that was something that even with a field cultivator, I used to notice every once in a while. You know, if you were doing it on ground that was, it was dry, yeah, dry enough to work, but it was a little mucky underneath, even if you waited 36 hours to let it dry out after you field cultivated it, you would still get a variability in your emergence because of the differing temperature and, and soil can temperature and moisture conditions down there. I think strip tills helped us tremendously on that. Well, I guess to wrap this up, what's next for you? Are there any other practices or challenges that you want to integrate or tackle? I think cover crops are going to be a big, big part of things mm -hmm. going forward. Um, I got a sister in law that works for the uh, forestry department out in in uh, Colorado 
and my brother does too. They're both research scientists for them, and, and they she works very heavily in the carbon sequestration and carbon cycle side of things and writes a lot of papers. And she asked me one day, she goes, well, how do we solve all these problems of carbon sequestration and hypoxia down south and nitrogen runoff and and, and all that kind of stuff? And I said, I, I can answer that question in one sentence, cover crops. I said, put them on every acre out there and get the funding to do it and you will solve 90% of these problems. Mm -hmm. And she just looked at me like, really, it's that simple? And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> I said, you will solve so many problems mm -hmm. just with cover crops. Yeah. So hopefully I steered her in the right direction. Maybe she can get it going from her end. <laughs> yeah. I think the state of Iowa has done a great job trying to help fund a lot of that stuff. And, yeah. you know, CSP programs have helped. Equip programs have helped. Um, we've tried to take advantage of an awful lot of that and, and done as much cover cropping as we can. We don't do it everywhere, but some of the farms that I'm doing it on, where we've got a good no-till, strip-till rotation going, not saying we won't ever do it there, but they aren't farms that I want to use as, as experiments. We probably will. I think it will become part of our, our regular program um very shortly and it has it's grown every year that we've done it we're it took us about six or seven years to just find out the right mix and the way of doing things and we have tried seeding it after taking off soybeans it worked that year <laughs> but i don't know that it'll work every year mm -hmm. um, i've been reluctant to make large investments in machinery to do it if it will or won't work Already doing the strip till in the fall kind of crunches my labor availability. And then to try to do cover crop seeding in the fall on top of that, I just don't have that kind of manpower right now. And that's why the airplanes fit in so well for us. Could your Gladiator be retrofitted to, to also do cover crop seed? It probably could. I'm sure we could mount some type of a spreader on the back. I mean, it would have to be a totally different system it would just be piggybacked on the back of it. But it's kind of like adding anhydrous to it where it would be just one more headache to have to deal with while you're strip tilling. Yeah. I'm a bigger fan of trying to put some type of a system on my vertical tillage machine where we can go at eight, nine miles an hour <laughs> and cover ground fast and, and get it done that way. I, I think that would be a little bit more cost effective. It's an extra trip, but I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. It's fast, it's cheap, it doesn't take a lot of fuel to run that machine. And we can cover a lot of ground fast, even faster than you could with a with an actual drill. The little bit of seeding that we have tried in the fall, that's the way we did it. We broadcasted ahead and then vertical tilled it in. And it worked. We did it side by side with an airplane and it looked just as good as an airplane did. I mean, it was the same growth rate, even though the airplane had, had actually applied it a month earlier. Okay. So it, it looked just as good, but we had a very warm fall that fall. And that's not always the case. What do you think? Uh, I mean, despite the efforts of the states and the, you know, CSP programs and everything to get people to adopt cover crops, it's a little bit of a hard sell, right? Um, it, it is at times. Um, I, I'm seeing a lot of people starting to gain a better opinion of it. Uh -huh. And that isn't always 
convincing people that it's the thing to do or that, that they should be doing it, but they're at least being supportive of the fact that, yeah, it's probably a good idea. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> I see. Um, but I think it's coming on more and more. Um, you know, one thing that is really, I, I think, been, been beneficial for me is that I've got a lot of my landlords that are involved in it now. Okay. And uh, they're requesting it. They're requesting it and they're supporting it. Okay. And even to the point of, I don't want to say this. The state cost share in Iowa only allows me personally to do so many acres, but it also allows my landlords to do the same number of acres. I get each of my landlords to sign up <laughs> and it increases the amount of, amount of funding that we get. There you go. <laughs> and I've got one guy who is, I believe, 75 years old this year, maybe a little older now, and uh, has been about as... He was a guy that ran the moldboard plow all the time and fought me for 10 years that moldboard plowing is the best tillage method there is. That's the best way to go. And he's even on board with it. Oh, okay. So um, I, I haven't discussed it a lot with him, but he's definitely seeing it, that it's not detrimental. Uh -huh. It's not hurting the way the crops look. Yeah. Um, we chopped a little bit of silage for one of my neighbors and right in front of his house last fall. And... I didn't like that bare ground out there, so I went out and seeded it quick. That case I used a drill. And I got it on a little heavy <laughs> right in front of his house. So he looked at it every single morning, and it was a strip right through the middle of the field. We didn't put cover crop on either side of it on the corn stalks that we combined later. And he got to look at that cover crop that was 12 inches tall when we finally killed it. And we planted right into it, which he did kind of look sideways at me on. Uh -huh. And then he watched me go out into that field and replant on both sides of the cover crop, but not in the cover crop because the cover crop held the heat. <laughs> uh -huh. oh. And now today, you can't even tell where that strip is. The beans look just as good where we did the cover crop as where we didn't, uh -huh. even though I had to replant them. And they're 15 inch well i guess they're 30 inch row beans but you can't tell where the difference is right now you can't visibly see it in the field and i also think he has definitely noticed though he doesn't doesn't admit it very often but i think he's noticed that the erosion is not near as bad in his farm as it used to be. but he just signed the paperwork yesterday to submit for this year's uh funding and I didn't even have to talk him into it. I just, I said, I need you to sign that again. He's like, okay, no problem. <laughs> nice. I'm all for it. So, um, and I got several landlords out of that way. They, they've all been very supportive of it. Not a one of them has ever said no. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, most of them, most of my landlords are old enough that they remember the days when we always had hay in the rotation and oats in the rotation. And they saw the benefits from that back then. And we've gotten away from that in the last 20, 30 years. I, you got to really look hard around here to find a small grain field, even a hay field. There's just, they aren't around here anymore. Everything's corn and soybeans. And it, it's a little too much of a monoculture. It's good to get a little variety in there. Now, are you signing up for any of the carbon programs? Somewhat, yes. I did get my feet wet at it this year. Oh. Um, and I got 
what do I got? I got six fields in, enrolled, um, the ones that I thought would be the most beneficial. I'm not real thrilled with the amount of record keeping that it requires. I, I'm not so sure that that isn't something that's going to come down the road and be mandatory anyway, or we might have to start doing more of anyway. Not just for carbon sequestration, but just government regulation and things like that. I, I'm a little worried about that. <laughs> you know, whether they're going to allow us to continue doing what we're doing or, or are we going to have to start justifying everything that we do. As of right now, if I want to go and put on 300 pounds of nitrogen, really nothing's stopping me um, as long as it's not manure. And that's part of the reason I'm such a big proponent of cover crops and things like that, because if... Like they always said, if, if we show that we can manage this ground without government intervention, then we're not going to have to prove what we're doing is right. And they don't have to stop us from doing what they think is wrong. Thanks to Eric Hawbaker for this conversation about making soil health improvements with strip-till and cover crops. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.